new series here this morning called Neighborhood Watch, which I believe has a really inter interesting connotation to it and an idea behind it. We'll talk about that a little bit later. If you want to prepare yourselves where we're going this morning, Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. And I got to thinking to myself, um, you're going to turn to Luke chapter 10 and you're probably, some of you at least are going to do this audibly or, or in your head. And you're going to go, I know what he's going to preach on this morning. Parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and I thought that to myself when I got this text. I was like, oh my land, I can't tell you how many times I've preached on this. But as I got to studying it this time, I thought in one sense, probably everybody thinks this, is, this has to be the easiest text to preach on. I mean, there's so much here and so much going on and so many people have heard it before that are like, how could you mess the Good Samaritan up? And then at the very same time, I also think it's probably one of the hardest texts to preach. A, because of what I just said, there is so much going on in Luke chapter 10 and these verses that we're going to read. And B, because everybody is so familiar with it that they just kind of yeah, toss it aside. Like, you've been, been there, done that, heard this one before. I don't need to hear this again. So my encouragement to you is that this morning you do not tune out as we read this story again, that we read it afresh this morning, and that there's going to be something there. And i got to be honest with you guys. I mean, I've been in church my entire life. I've been in ministry for, I don't know, 14, 15 years now. And I read this this last week, and I, like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought to myself, I have been completely reading this parable wrong my entire life. Now, some of you, guess what? I've said this before, I'm not a smart guy. All right. So there may be some of you sitting in, the, in, in here this morning that are thinking to yourselves, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this out this morning and you're going to go, he didn't know that. But I feel like for most of us in here, we're going to be like, ah, I never thought of that parable in that way before. But before we get started, we dive into Luke chapter 10, I want to introduce you to probably what is one of my favorite series of commercials, not just currently, uh, but even in the past, and I think I might have a, a, uh, a picture up here. A state, like the State Farm commercials are so great, aren't they? Now, admittedly, you watch them and you're like, that's really annoying now, please stop. But the ones that they have right now are just sort of, of comical, and they're great. But, but well before the Aaron Rodgers, and well before Patrick Mahomes, if you watch those today, those are kind of the main guys that are on there today, way before the constant duel between a sports agent and a state farm agent, the company had another memorable marketing campaign. And it's up here, isn't it, right? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we could sit and probably just talk about that one line for a long time of what they're trying to communicate in saying that. But I think we get the gist and we get the point. They want to communicate that State Farm is always right where you need them to be. That campaign actually came to define them for nearly 40 five years. From 1971 till 2016, State Farm came to be defined by that mantra that has likely burned its place in our minds. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I could go around to anybody and say, like a good neighbor, and somebody wouldn't say, State Farm is there. All right, we've just been kind of conditioned and brainwashed into that's what that means. The nearly 100-year-old company based in Bloomington, Illinois, has staked its reputation and its identity on the concept of being more than just an insurance company. I mean, how boring is that really, guys? You understand why they do this. Like, hey, we're State Farm. We're 
an insurance company, we do home, we do life, we do auto. It's just it's not as jingly and as awesome as like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Their motto and their corporate identity has been formed by seeking to be there in the moments when people need them the most. And in a slight switch and updating of that mindset, in 2016, State Farm chose to go with an equally social conscious motto. Do you know what their motto is nowadays? It's not like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've moved on to something else. Anybody know? Come on, surprise me. Wow me, impress me. Do what? No, no, they don't do, yeah, they do the discount and double check, but that's not their mantra. Their mantra today, guys, whether you know it or not, and probably not because they get caught up in all the other goofiness of their stuff, is their motto now is here to help life go right. That's State Farm's motto and mantra today. And as an assistant vice president of marketing, <clears throat> Beth Ward says this, and guys, this sets the tone of everywhere we're going to go for the next few weeks. She says, what's interesting is that people don't always realize the many ways that we've been there to help life go right. People know State Farm as a car and home insurer, that good neighbor company that is always there to help them recover after a car crash, house fire, natural disaster, said Ward, and we have been and will be there when all those things go wrong, but we are so much more. And, and whether we think, guys, this new tagline communicates the same passion and the same intent to be there for the customer or to be there for the neighbor, Ward assures any clients or clients to be that State Farm is not changing from its long-standing commitment to be a trusted source of neighborliness now and into the future. She says, being a good neighbor has been and always will be part of the State Farm DNA. And then the article highlights Ward giving a very interesting perspective. While technology has had a dramatic impact on the way customers interact with businesses, it cannot replace the value of human interactions. The more that I go through life, guys, and I'm sort of a younger buck, and yes, I love technology, and yes, I love all the stuff that is at our fingertips, but the older that I get, I completely realize there is nothing and will be nothing that will ever replace you and me seeing each other face to face, being able to shake hands, being able to hug, being able to help one another physically. She says, at State Farm, we believe human connections still matter very much. State Farm has the unique ability to connect with people, understand their situation, and most importantly, help. Guys, it's actually a, a genius marketing idea. They, they have found a way to play on nostalgia, felt need, and the reality of the world that we live in today. But it's also a promise that evidently has real substance behind it since the company has been in existence for nearly 100 years. See, guys, State Farm realizes, and it's my belief, that the world that we live in today is not the same world that we once knew. And it doesn't matter how seasoned or how young you are, this world is constantly and rapidly changing. And you arrive in the next week and you look back at the previous week and you're like, my land, what, what happened? I mean, seriously, like if you fall asleep on a one Monday and you wake up the next Monday, you're, you're way behind. I mean, you are light years behind of what's going on in this world. 
at the risk of sounding overly nostalgic, let me take you back to my childhood. More specifically, let me take you back to my neighborhood growing up. Well, I can't go through every neighbor that I grew up around in my childhood years. There are, there are three neighbors in particular that I think symbolize the varying levels of relationship that you have with your next-door neighbors. First, if I was in my house and I was facing South Division Street, to my right would be the Aerosmiths. Rhonda and Dave, by all accounts, they were your typical and really perfect neighbors. The wife was, honestly, and she still is today, the cheeriest, kindest, gentlest person you would ever meet in your life. The husband was just a typical guy next door, no issues there. They were really good neighbors. Interestingly enough, if I was to go home to my parents' house and visit them today, do you know who I'd find right over to the right-hand side? The Aerosmiths. On the other side of us, to the left, was a sweet older couple, Bernie and Grace Kirkhoff. Mrs. Kirkhoff was actually my mom's typing teacher in high school, so that tells you how long she was around in, in the area. There are two things that I will never forget about the Kirkhoffs. The piece of bazooka bubblegum that Bernie would give us kids on what seemed like a daily basis, especially in the summertime. He would come out with this gigantic container of bazooka bubblegum, and our eyes would just, oh, oh yeah. He would just dole it out, all right? And then there was what I affectionately termed the, the downspout incident. For some reason that is unknown even to me to this day, I decided during one stretch of time to go completely to the evil side, to the mischievous side. I know that's hard for a lot of you to believe, right? But alas, it's true, guys. During this wild stage in my life, I had it in my, line, my mind to walk over to Bernie and Grace's house, and for no good reason to simply just rip off the downspouts from their home. I'm like, imagine this. I don't know how old I was, I can't remember. Clank, throw it down in the yard and just find the next one and just throw them down in the yard. And I did this for who knows how long. Went on forever. Until one day I made the mistake of arriving to the downspouts a little too late, and I got caught red-handed in the act with a downspout in my hand. Suffice it to say, guys, I had never run so fast in my life as I did in that very moment. Straight into the house, behind the little green chair that used to grace the corner of my parents' living room. Now, what I didn't tell you about Mrs. Kirkhoff was that back in her teaching days, she was known and had the reputation for being the meanest, strictest woman you would ever know. Long story short, I got to see teacher Mrs. Kirkhoff that day through all of my little kid tears. It's a moment that I am still traumatized by to this very day. Still, I was, I was being a really bad neighbor to Bernie and Grace Kirkhoff. And they were great neighbors to my family. And then there were the crafts. Caddy corner across the road, Charlie and Brenda. Charlie was actually my scoutmaster growing up, so I spent a lot of time with him and in his home, and I spent time with their son. And the best way that I can put it, my relationship with their son, Jason, was contentious at best. I'll never forget the time that he walked right across the road, and I watched him the entire time, and he came over, and he just punched me. 
And my dad was sitting there mowing the yard, and again, traumatizing moment in life. I just remember my dad mowing, stopping, watching us wrestling on the ground, throwing punches at each other, and he just went, hmm, and went back to it. And I was thinking, Dad, I'm being attacked here. Help me. To put it mildly, Jason didn't like me for much of the time of our growing up together. And I never really knew how to take Jason. But here's the point that I want to make in walking down memory lane. Despite the levels of relationship with my neighbors, from good to very, very bad, here's one thing that's undeniable, guys. I, I knew my neighbors. My neighbors knew me. Some better than others, but I knew who was in the neighborhood. But today, guys, all of that nostalgia means nothing. Because by and large, and I can say this only for myself, but I believe it to be true of the world we live in today, we don't know our neighbors. Better yet, not only do we not know our neighbors, we don't care enough to know our neighbors. Now, I'm not doing this as a blanket statement to say everybody in this room is like that, because I know some of you are really great at this, and you know the people in your neighborhood. But by and large, most of us don't. Just for a little fun, before we jump into things this morning, I wanted to take a look at some famous neighbor relationships. Let me pull this out here just a smidge, maybe, if I can not destroy everything. Ah, whatever, I'll just kind of tilt it this way. You guys remember this neighbor relationship? These, these are neighbor relationships from when I was growing up. Boy Meets World. Corey Matthews and his neighbor was who? Mr. Feeney. Now this is really bad. Not only was Mr. Feeney his next door neighbor, he was also his what? His history teacher. Like, that's just weird, all right? How about this next one? You guys remember this neighbor relationship? Yeah. Tim the Tool Man Taylor and his neighbor who? Richard Wilson. Wilson, right? Everybody wanted to see this guy's face and then finally did at the very last episode. How about the next one? You guys know that one? Homer Simpson and his, his neighbor was who? Ned Flanders. Ned Flanders. Hi, diddly -doo. You know, Ned Flanders, he's the guy that everybody wants to punch. Homer and Ned have this contentious relationship, but secretly, deep down, Homer really loves Ned Flanders. What about the next relationship? Jerry Seinfeld and Cosmo Kramer. I love to, I love to do my impression of giddy up. I love my, <laughs> right? And if I had a door, I'd come you know, sliding in and everything. Okay. How about this one? Carl Winslow, A and who? Steve, did I knew that? It's Steve Urkel. That's him. How about the next one? I told you guys, these are all from my childhood. You remember here? You, who's the next door neighbor? You remember her name? Kimmy Gibbler, right? And she was a neighbor to the Tanners. Each of these shows, guys, was defined by the neighbor relationship. And the value of, of some of the most, I'm convinced, iconic TV shows and the best TV shows of all time are based on what? Neighbor relationships. Being neighborly. No matter how much somebody pestered someone else, it was all about this neighbor relationship. Knowing one another to such a point that they were there for each other. And yet, guys, in our very own day, in many of our lives, we, again, like I said earlier, don't know our neighbors. Truth be told, most of us 
don't want to know our neighbors. Actually, in fact, I found this picture this week that really, I think, sums up our day and our time. It's not like a good neighbor state farm is there, but it's this, this next picture. I love it. Like a good neighbor, just, just, just stay over there. I don't want you in my space. I don't want you in my business. Just stay over there. But however true that may be, it doesn't discount the truth that we all need a good neighbor. Likewise, we all, we all need to really be a good neighbor. We all have a need to know and to, to be known. So guys, what's the problem when we don't quite know our neighbor? In Jesus' own time here in Luke chapter 10, he dealt with the very same issue. People who didn't quite know who their neighbor was, didn't really want to be a neighbor, and the need for Jesus to define that relationship for them. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It's all set up by this, and it says that one day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law say? You're a lawyer after all. You're an expert in it. What does it say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus says. Do this and you will live. I love verse 29. The man wanted to justify his actions. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make himself look really, really, really good. And he asks Jesus, and who's my neighbor? Who, in fact, Jesus is my neighbor? The series we're going to be covering and going over in the next three weeks is entitled Neighborhood Watch. And as we journey through scripture and we journey through stories and we journey through thoughts, the main idea that will hold everything together is the concept of a neighborhood watch group. Now, what is the tip? I know, buddy. Uh, no. It's, it's painful. Now, what, what's the typical concept and premise between, behind a neighborhood watch group? Security, right? Keep the bad out. Keep us safe at all costs. However, if we really to understand how a neighborhood watch group enjoys maximum effectiveness... It would be summed up in this one quote that I found as I was kind of looking through this concept of neighborhood watch. And believe you me, I found some crazy stuff this week as far as neighborhood watch groups go. But this is what one person said. We want to form a neighborhood watch program in this neighborhood because we should know our neighbors. That way we can watch out for each other. Do you see how it totally flips everything? It's not you stay over there and you stay out of my space and you stay out of my business. It's I want to know you. I want to know you so that I can watch out for you and so that I can care for you. That's an attitude shift there, guys. It, It goes from everyone else is bad, stay out, skepticism, to openness and care. We go from suspicion and cynicism to authenticity and a desire to know one another and to be known by one another. This is exactly what I think is going on in this famous parable here in Luke chapter 10. 
On, on the surface level, what the story really gets at is that we all need a good neighbor. I think secondarily what it is about, too, is that we all need to be a good neighbor. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But, but what really lies, guys, at the heart and the root of this story is so much deeper than I think most of us are willing to go. I mean, it's pretty easy to say, honestly, I could sit up here and teach today and say, here's the deal. We're going to read the rest of this parable here in a minute. We know how it goes, but if you would just be kind to people and people who are beat up on the side of the road and people that are victims in life, then guess what? You'll be okay with God. That's generally kind of where we settle on this parable. And I'm not saying that it's not there, but I just don't think it's the main story. I don't think it's the main point. I think we woefully miss the big message in the parable of the Good Samaritan if that's all we want to do. Just be good people, help everybody out, everything will be okay. That's a little too simplistic to me. So I want to dive in and I want to look at what's at the heart of this episode that, ha- that many of us in here this morning have read more times than we can count. This whole parable is precipitated by an encounter between Jesus and an expert in the law, a, a, a lawyer, if you will. And there are two questions that lie at the heart and the center of this exchange, and they are very fascinating. First, what the law nerd asks is this. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's he really asking in that moment? Jesus, I mean, just, just cut to the chase for me. I, I want to get into heaven, and so how do I make that happen? Guys, it's not, it's not a very, not all that different a question than what most people ask today. Like, here's the deal. I want to cut through, I want to cut through all this here. Like, I don't need to read that. I just, I want to get to heaven. I want eternal life. So just tell me how to do it. Just give me a formula, give me a pattern to follow, and then I'll just do that and everything will be okay. What wonderful answer does Jesus give to that question when he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't. He actually asks his own question. He says, you're the expert, what does the law say? To which the diligent student recites all of the law code, essentially saying this, love God, love others. Now here's the deal, guys, that's not bad. That, that's, that's straight scripture right there. The problem with it is, is that we're really good, some of us, at reciting Scripture and just saying it over and over and over again, and it really means nothing. We realize no practical action in our lives. It's a beautiful answer this guy gives, but it's obviously not the one and is not an answer that is impacting and transforming this guy's life. Notice Jesus' approach to this answer. He says, do this and you will live. Actually, the correct translation of what he says right there, and it's so fascinating to me, is he says, do this and you will be living. Jesus is recalibrating this guy's entire thought process. What what is Jesus really saying in this moment? He's saying, "Here, here, here, buddy, you want eternal life, but I want to tell you how to have life right now. Here and now, in this moment, I'm going to tell you how you can be living right now. And you can tell this isn't really changing the guy's mind one bit, because in the very next moment, he becomes all smarmy and so self-righteous. He ups the ante and he asks this question, doesn't he? Who's my neighbor? And again, Jesus doesn't just directly answer him, does he? He just gives him a story. He gives him this story starting at verse 30. 
A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. This is very interesting to me. There's so much background information I could put in this sermon, but I don't have time for it. But this is what people mostly say when they read this, with the priest and with the Levite. Is they say, well, here's the deal. Weren't priests and Levites committed to being ceremonially clean? They weren't about to touch this dead guy. That's why they didn't go and touch this dead guy. But can you, can you with me again visit, what's the direction that these guys are traveling? It says they're traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. There is nothing about them that says, I'm pressed for time or that I can't be touching a dead body because it'll make me unclean. It's just because they didn't care one bit about that guy lying there on the ground. And then it says, listen to this. This tells you exactly where the story is going and how hated Samaritans were. It says, then a despised, a despicable, a hated Samaritan came along. Please put yourself in the, in, in the sandals of a first century person listening to this story. They're like, where is this story going? Jews and Samaritans hated each other. So like, okay, Samaritan's going to come along, he's going to do the same thing because Samaritans don't associate with Jews. But here's what it says. He saw the man and he felt compassion for him and he went over to that man. The Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine, bandaged them, and then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. And this lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. What does he say? So the man replied, the one. The one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said this, And I'm convinced, guys, that these words right here at the very end are the entire point of the the whole parable. We get caught up in all this other background and and very important but, but secondary information to what Jesus says here at the end. The one who showed him mercy and Jesus said this, yes. Now go and do the same. Guys, let me cut to the chase here this morning. Here is the real question that's at the heart of this story. The the man is asking, who is my neighbor on the surface? But the heart of what he's really asking, and a question that I think most of us ask, is how much do I have to help and love my neighbor? Like, you know, the real real life, the really annoying neighbor that's across the road, and you're like, no. Like, maybe I'll just go from Luke 9 to Luke 11, because I do not want to read this. How much do I have to help and love and care for my neighbor? You see, in the parable, in Jesus' parable, in order to help, the Samaritan has to put himself at great personal risk. He used his own money. He even opened the line of credit at the end where he took the victim. Big picture, he took on the man's burdens as his own. I know some people are sitting there thinking, you're like, well, wait a minute. Like, they got themselves in that situation anyways. Why do I have to stare and carry the burden? 
If you knew this stretch of road from Jerusalem to Jericho, you would know it was infamous for being a kind of road where you could be attacked. And so maybe the Levite, and so maybe the priest walk by this guy and they look at him and they think, like, stupid. Didn't he know you shouldn't be walking this road? Stupid. Didn't, didn't, didn't he know that, like, that probably was not the greatest idea? And so you brought this on yourself, and so sit there, lay there, die there, is possibly what these guys are thinking. And when we look at this parable, what we really have to do is we have to find the one overarching theme and message that Jesus is trying to communicate. Which, guys, honestly, is sometimes very difficult. Not just this parable, but a lot of parables that you read that Jesus teaches, you're like, what? Like, what's he trying to say here? Like, what? Like, I want to cut through everything and we'll get to the heart of what Jesus is trying to say. And sometimes that becomes very difficult. But looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, I, I believe that what captures the heart of what Jesus is trying to communicate is, is that living like a good neighbor involves bearing some burdens. Living a life that is shaped by and patterned by Christ himself involves that we're going to have to do some stuff that we really don't want to do. Go to some people that we really don't want to go to. Guys, that's not popular None of us wants to think about bearing the burdens of others. After all, again, aren't their problems their own responsibility? If we dig a little deeper, many times there are people that just don't deserve, don't seem to deserve our bearing their burdens. But guys, that is the power of this parable, and I don't want you to miss it. The command to love our neighbor is not rooted or doesn't rest on the loveliness of that neighbor. I want to say that again because I really want you to hear it. Because you're going to go out here today, and I, I guarantee that at least for some of you, you're going to be really annoyed and irked by somebody even this afternoon. And you're going to think in your mind, why would I want to do anything for them? Jesus teaches this parable, and he goes through this parable, and it's not that people around us are lovely and wonderful and easy to love. It's actually the direct opposite of that. You, know, you guys remember when Jesus says, do to others... What's it say after that? As you would have them do to you. The whole point of that entire line that Jesus gives is that at the very, at the precisely the moment that somebody is being unlovely, precisely at the moment where you don't think people deserve the love and the grace of God, is exactly the moment that you would do to them what you would have them do to you. J.D. Greer says it this way, Unlike the lawyer in the story of the Good Samaritan whose questioning prompted Jesus' parable, we don't love our neighbors in order to earn heaven. Listen to that. That's what I say in the other. We don't just do stuff and try to be good people just so we can earn something, so we can earn eternal life. He says, and this is so, so, so important and key, we're doing it because heaven was given to us as a gift. And we can't help but become to others what Jesus has become to us. When it comes to how much of our time and how much of our money and how much of our energy we give to those in need, there is no magic number. I wish, guys, I could sit up here and tell you, here's the deal. 
Compute it. That's exactly what you should do. It's the same thing that, G- that Peter does when he comes to Jesus. How, Jesus, how many times should I forgive somebody? Jesus gives this really wacky mathematical formula. His point is, just keep doing it. And he would ask, well, Ryan, but seriously, who? Who in the world am I supposed to reach out to? Who in the, how, how much am I supposed to do? When should I do it? Yes. Just keep doing it. Just keep going. Just keep loving. Just keep serving. Just keep giving of yourself at the point, precisely the point you think, I can't do this anymore, and that's when you just keep on going. There's one thing we can be sure of, guys, when we're doing that. When we are following Jesus in this area of giving of ourselves sacrificially, it will feel like we are shouldering some of the burdens, if not all of the burdens, of other people. C.S. Lewis once said that the only safe rule when it comes to giving more than you think more than you can spare is to give until it pains you and it scares you. Anybody ever been in a position before where they have given and it scares the pants off of you? That you have approached somebody in your life and you're like, I'm just going to put myself out here and it freaks you out. It, it, actually, it actually hurts. It's one of the best ways to know if you're beginning to bridge the gap that I feel like Christ is calling us as his followers to bridge is how much of my time, how much of my resources is poured out for others. I'm convinced that the central message of this parable that we can't possibly miss and hope to catch the heart of Christ is that God expects us to take the initiative to cross boundaries, overcome barriers, bridge the gap to show his mercy by serving others. It's not for us just to be good. Not for us to just swoop into the rescue and be like, here I am, good Samaritan. No, it's to realize the grace and the mercy and the love, the generosity that Christ has already given to us and do whatever it takes, cross any bridge, go to any length to pass that on to somebody else. But how in the world could any of us possibly live up to the Good Samaritan ideal? I'm going to say a line because I'm going to ask you to repeat it a couple more times. How are we supposed to live a life like that? And you'll, you say this, you need grace for that. Say it. How in the world are you going to live a life like that? There you go. You've got it now. You see, guys, there's, there's something that I think all of us forget. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning as well. All forget this when it comes to living life. And this is super simple, but if we miss it, we miss so much. Guys, we need grace. We need grace every moment of every day to do anything in this life. I, I think what happens, I was just talking with Levi about this week, I think so often what happens with us guys is that we forget the grace that we have been given. And in turn, because we forget the grace that we've been given, we, we don't extend that grace to those around us. And that's where I believe two of these guys in the story fall short. And each of the people who come upon this guy's dire need, they all fit the criteria of someone who should take responsibility. And let me give you just a really simple, I don't usually like to do this, but just like a little simple equation for like, 
hmm, should I be responsible for this or not? All right, and it goes like this. Proximity plus urgency plus your capacity to help equals your responsibility. Let's look at it, like, let's apply that to this story. They all had the same information, did they not? It says that every one of these three guys that walk up to this man in the road, they saw him. That's information. But only one of the people in this story moves beyond information and has compassion. It says this Samaritan has pity on the man. And in, and in that pity and that compassion, he stirred to action. He sa- it says he, he went to him. Guys, these are very important movements. Because I believe in our lives, a lot of us get stuck in information. Oh, yeah, I know about that need. I know that person really needs help. But... Or what we could do is we could actually make it a second step and we could have compassion on someone. We could feel pity for someone, but that's where it stops. That short circuits the entire process. We need to actually act upon all of that. Can we all agree in this story that all three of these guys are in close proximity to the man who is left half dead? Yeah. They all see the man. They're all walking down the same road. It's clear that there is obvious urgency in the story, is there not? The man is half dead. And they certainly all have the capacity. Any one of these guys could have offered their help with little to no special skill required. But only one of the guys takes the next step, the most important step, I'm convinced, and that is to act, to do something. And so many people in this world are saying, I don't, I don't have time. They're justifying inaction by saying, I don't have the skills, I don't have the abilities. Let the big guns take care of it. Sometimes that's a problem with the church today, I'm convinced, why the church is just stuck in a spot. So we didn't look to everybody else, we looked to the big guns. Oh, like, oh. That guy over there, the minister? Family guy? Yeah, like, just, let them, just let them take care of it. Let, let ministers take care of that. Let the Levites and the priests of the day take care of that. But I want you to notice something in the story, guys. The priest and the Levite in the story have titles, don't they? They have prestige. They have importance. But guess what they weren't doing? They weren't fulfilling their task. They weren't carrying out their responsibility. But, but, but Ryan, I didn't create the problem. It's not my worry anyways. That's what the first two guys in the story think. I won't. I can't. It's the same words that we often say, to which Jesus would say this. And this is where it's so important in this parable. Jesus would say, good. Good. Good that you think that you won't, and good that you think especially that you can't. Because, guys, we do not stand in our own strength. We stand in the grace of God every moment of every day to live a gap-filling kind of life. The, what, what is that phrase I said again? To live that kind of life, what? We need grace for that. Guys, our world needs a good Samaritan. But again, who can live like this? No one could possibly live like this in their own power. But guys, and this is where really kind of rocked me this week, perhaps that's the point of this parable. Perhaps that's what we need to see as we look through everything else in this story. As Rich Wilkerson Jr. says, the gospel begins where you and I end.
Jesus would say it this way. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Who can be a good neighbor at all times, in all ways? And I want you to hear this. Only Jesus can do that. Guys, the point of the Good Samaritan I said, is not for us to, if, if I could only be that good. No, guys, the point of the parable is to point us to the greatest good that we will ever know. In the light and in the love of Jesus Christ. In truth, do you know who we are in the story? We're not the priest. We're not the Levite. Most of us would think, well, guess what? I'm supposed to step into the Good Samaritan role, right? You're not even the Good Samaritan. Who's left in the story? The man lying on the road, half beaten, or beaten and half dead. We are that man left that no one was willing to bridge the gap to rescue. But Jesus did. Guys, he stepped down from heaven to pursue us, to rescue us, to put us on mission to extend that grace to those who are in the same position that we once found ourselves in. We have been given grace to show grace. The gap has been bridged for us so that we can help bridge the gap for others by leading to the source of life. I think of this way. Jesus is the one true, only, perfect example Good Samaritan. Do you know what we are? We're just little Good Samaritans in training. Trying every single day of our lives to emulate and to follow and to pattern our lives after Jesus, the Good Samaritan. And here is a conviction that I have. Do you know what most people don't want more of from you? They don't want more theology from you. They just want to see love and grace and mercy. It's always fascinating to me that when Jesus is introduced in John chapter 1, it says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. As important, guys, and necessary as we find sharing the gospel to be, you cannot speak the gospel in good conscience if you cannot live the gospel in your daily life. It doesn't matter how much theology you know. It doesn't matter how much stuff you assent to in your belief and in your faith. If you cannot live it out in your life, it doesn't make any worldly difference. Part of living the gospel requires that we know how to love and to offer grace. For faithfully walking in relationship with those around us, there will be plenty of opportunity for the gospel to rush in. And if we aren't, if we aren't faithfully in a relationship to the people around us, if we don't even know who our neighbors are, there's no sense in rushing into the gospel and running over people. Guys, living in the gospel and love starts as close to home as you can get with your family. I've often said it this way, 
you cannot love the people that are closest to you, if we as Christians cannot love the people that we see on a weekly basis as we come or throughout the week, if we cannot love people right here, what makes you think that you're ever going to love people out there? You guys want a homework assignment? I want to be really practical this morning. I'm going to try to give you a little homework assignment every week, and it's very simple. And here, everybody loves homework. They, they, they say, I can pass this with flying colors. Ready? Two things. We're going to be really, really serious about this. I want you this week, and this is all I'm asking, hear this very clearly. I want you to begin to know your neighbors. And this is how it's going to happen. I simply just want you to know your neighbor's name. Guys, like, we have technology at our fingertips today that allows us. Here's the deal. I'm not even asking you to go knock on a door. Like, just leverage technology and say, who is this person that lives next to me? Who are they? Okay? That doesn't stop just there. Wherever you go this week and the people that you find yourself around, if you're in a restaurant, look at a name tag. You don't have to engage in a conversation right now. Just find out, this is Becky. This is David. Wherever you are Wherever you can do this, however you can find out, find out people's names. The easiest place is just right around you. The people next to you, across the street from you, who are they? And then do this and see what happens as you commit to this. Pray for them every single day by name. You may not know what's going on in their life, but it doesn't matter. God does. Just offer them up to God and say, please, Please, God, would you work in Dale's life? I don't know. I don't know him from Adam, to be honest, but he lives right next door to me. But I offer him up to you, and that if you would have it and it would be your will over the coming, and don't do this, please. I, I can't stand this. This is not a turning people into projects thing. Don't do this. Only do this if you have the right motive and you walk out of you and say, guess what? Jesus has loved me, and so I want to love other people around me. That's all you have to do this week, right? Can everybody just simply and basically do that? Know the name of the people around you. Pray for the people around you by name. Got it? Got it. Levi's giving me a big thumbs up. Let's pray, guys. Lord, we would ask that in every way and in every day, you would help us not necessarily to think more about how we can be better or pardon the grammar, to be gooder. But Lord, every day we would figure out more how you loved us. How you loved us first. How you loved us when we were unlovely. How you loved us when we were at our worst. And as we think about that, Lord, that it motivates us and causes us to move into others' lives and just little by little to begin to just find out a name. and to pray for that person by name. And as we do that, Lord, it would begin to change our hearts, that it would make our hearts more loving and more open to you and to the people around us. Lord, you are calling us in this world, in the one life that you have given to us, to be the gospel. And so I pray that we would do that with all earnestness and sincerity, with all urgency we'd be watching out in our neighborhoods for our neighbors, not in some 
skeptical way, but in a loving, Christ-centered way. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.